0: i love the way she says that recording in progress (laughs) she's very determined business californian lady
1: yeah definitely californian
0: yeah a hundred percent californian recording in progress okay sweetheart
1: chill chill
0: out love it's fine Well, hello everyone. Welcome back to When the Rainbow Appears, a little podcast with myself, Lisa J.
1: Lewis, and my deliciously cool friend Rachel. Hi, Rach. Hi, oh, you're just saying that because I've got my computer glasses on today. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I just took TV my hair there.
0: I just took my hair down out of a bun and it looks like a like 1980s like power blow dry. I don't know what's gone wrong with it, but it's gone like ridiculously curly. <laughs>
1: Superb. Well, fortunately, it's a podcast
0: and nobody can see. No, I'm really pleased about that because I don't really have much makeup on either. <laughs> the last time we kind of introed everything, we spoke about our stories and we looked at some of the definitions and the words. And this time, we're going to look at well, it's called it's called the sexuality clobber verses in the hebrew bible so firstly let's let's use that as a definition what what does the clobber verse yeah that's a word that gets thrown around a lot
1: (laughs) clobber verses are the very 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 small number of bible verses that could be interpreted as referring to um gay sexuality in some way or another right and they're called many of them but if you ask Christians where they get their ideas from that God hates gay people or hates homosexuality it's this small number of verses they go back to yeah and although picking a verse out of context is not the best way to interpret (laughs) the bible because that's what people do to us it's kind of where we need to start
0: yeah absolutely and they're called clobber verses because we've sort of um taken that ourselves haven't we in in the LGBT community because they are the verses that have been used to clobber us Cruise and to us. kind of throw at us and it, it intended sometimes to hurt and sometimes used by accident not with an intention to hurt but
1: it still hurts and sometimes used with genuine love because yeah. people really believe that we are on a dangerous and damaging path and yeah. they want to save us to be fair
0: absolutely well let's have a look then at session two which is the sexuality club versus the how you told me how evangelicals read the Bible we ought to say this is not a we hate evangelicals form no no really not. not in any way shape or form but I've certainly grown up in the evangelical kind of corner of the church um so yeah I feel like feel like, like, like we love I know
1: sin, least. you know how oh, exactly <laughs> I feel like I know how evangelicals teach Bible because that's basically yeah So anyway, before we get into um, looking at the Bible, we have to kind of be aware of how, if you come from an evangelical kind of background, how we've been taught to read the scriptures. And you'll be really familiar with phrases like the Bible clearly says X, Y, and Z. The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. People talk about the inerrant word of God. With a very specific meaning in mind, that every word in the Bible is literally true, and that as Christians we follow every single word in the Bible literally and exactly, and we believe every event happened historically exactly as it's written. How Jewish people read the scriptures, on the other hand, is completely different. I can't show you this because it's a podcast, but if you Google the Mishnah, which is the kind of Jewish commentary on the scriptures, then you won't probably understand it unless you read Hebrew. But what you'll see on the page is you'll see this tiny little box in the middle that's got the Bible verse in it. And then hundreds and hundreds of words around the outside in different sections. And all the sections are the different rabbis through history commenting on the verse in the middle. So you read the Bible verse and you know what this rabbi thinks about it and what that rabbi thought about it and what a third rabbi wrote about it. And they're all completely different. And it doesn't try to resolve the difference. It's like, well, this is the verse. These are the opinions available. What do we think about that? Mm -hmm. And through most of history, that's you know certainly that's how Jewish people have read the Hebrew scriptures. There was a large degree of that also in traditional Christian reading of the scriptures. And the whole idea of a literalist interpretation is really, really modern. In the UK, it dates from sort of the late 1800s. The Evangelical Alliance was formed by 1860ish, I think. And basically in response to Darwin and his theories of evolution. And in America, the, the first publications really from sort of a fundamentalist evangelical point of view was 1910. When a group of american businessmen published um a set of things called the the fundamentalist papers but it's 20th century basically this is not as people will tell you how christians have read the bible since the time of jesus or since the time of moses it's really recent
0: absolutely just um, backtrack slightly so the hebrew
1: scriptures are what we might know as torah right um well we include the torah but also the prophets what we traditionally call the old testament okay and the mishnah don't call it the old testament and the mishnah is like the commentary on it is how the how how jewish people interpret the old testament
0: but does the mishnah still count as jewish
1: scripture or is it more like a commentary like we would read no it's like a bible commentary commentary. if you might buy tom wright's commentary on romans or something and read what tom wright thinks about it but when we buy one we just have tom wright we don't have tom wright and marcus borg and some other person all talking about the same thing with completely different opinions you have to go to theological college to get that level of stuff
0: That would make an interesting Bible commentary, wouldn't it? Where you've got one verse and you've got all the different kind of commentary people around it. That would be really good. I just wanted to clear that up so that people kind of understood where we were coming from in terms
1: of our Jewish scriptures. Right, carry on. Sorry, I'll be quiet now. The idea being that the early church fathers and mothers, of course, were trained in that way of reading scripture, not in our way of there's only one right answer. That was never the assumption. Even people in the Bible needed interpretation to understand it. You've got the bit where... um, people have gone back from Babylon to rebuild the temple, they find the book of the law. And then in Nehemiah 8, it says the Levites instructed the people in the law. They read from the book, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood. So the people did not understand what was being read. So in the Bible that needed people to interpret, to give meaning to it. Paul takes advantage of this when he's arrested in Acts 23. He, he gets the Sadducees and the fight, and the Pharisees fighting against each other over the meaning of the resurrection, because he's he's basically trying to get them to take the focus off him but the whole point is the pharisees and the sadducees read the bible differently and it doesn't say which of either of them were right there's always been disagreement there's always been interpretation and if we're really really honest every single christian interprets the bible now you might do that for yourself you might accept the interpretation that's been passed to you by parents or pastors or your church tradition or a particular author that you like but there is an interpretation that you're buying into. For example, we have controversial verses like sell your possessions and give to the poor. There's been denominations in church history that have demanded their members do that. The vast majority don't. If you lust after a woman, cut your eye out in Matthew 5. Again, not a command I've seen many people interpret literally. Women should not wear jewelry or expensive clothes. Lease, sorry i know you can like follow the path. lord you have to be follow the path of righteousness i like my bling <laughs> um if you follow deuteronomy 21 verse 18 and stone your disobedient children to death i will be calling child protection that's not mm-hmm. a thing that we think is okay anymore um women covering their head to praise an interesting one my nan's generation in wales would definitely have worn hats to church it was a thing that you did and I know people of an older generation who praying at home will pray with a newspaper or a tea towel on their head. But these days, it seems to have slid out of the way, even in the most complementarian of churches. There's not many people that, places that make women wear hats to church anymore. And of course you should kill anyone of a different religion, as Deuteronomy 17 clearly says. And I've never honestly seen anyone check, as Leviticus 15 teaches us to, if anybody who's sitting on a chair before you was on their period. Have you seen any churches with that sign up on the front door?
0: It no. Says
1: that you shouldn't sit on a chair if the person on it before you was on their period.
0: No, never seen that. And I've seen it in check- America and in the UK, not seen it on either yeah. side of the Atlantic. But. Exactly.
1: So basically, if we're honest, there's a whole pile of Bible verses that we don't follow literally. A bunch from the Old Testament, which we can kind of write off as well. That's the Old Testament. We're new covenant people. We don't need to follow that. But there's also a whole pile of stuff Jesus and Paul say that we don't do. And I do tend to notice, I'm a little bit cynical here, but I do tend to notice that the verses that people want you to take literally are all the ones about miracles and lovely things like that. And then as soon as Jesus talks about money, those are the ones we take metaphorically. So we are using a certain hermeneutic, a certain way of interpreting. Everybody, every tradition has bits of the Bible they think are literal, bits of the Bible they think are historical, bits of the Bible they think are metaphorical. And if we can be honest about that, that then gives us a lot more freedom to say, okay, so why do we choose that bit and not these bits? Because somewhere in history, there needs to be a reason for it. The reality is we we do interpret and we wrestle with the text and we find the best meaning in our culture and our time. So Deuteronomy might tell you to kill somebody of a different religion, but Desmond Tutu found his best mate in the Dalai Lama. And you see them together, you can see that's a genuine friendship. People don't sell all their possessions and give to the poor necessarily very often, but we do try and be sensible stewards with our money and give to charity and use our money in a way that's honouring to God. Some Pentecostal ladies still love to wear their hats and the Lord bless them. Absolutely, but we, don't, we don't generally send people to hell because they're not we have changed our minds about slavery we've changed our minds about women in leadership we've changed our minds think about the northern ireland peace process about people changing their minds about who was good and who was evil and who could be loved and who could be accepted and who can't and that's how god works through us because we have to interpret the best meaning for our culture and our time when the old ways don't fit anymore if we can get hold of that if we can get hold of that fact that we will disagree i mean if you line any two christians up there's almost certainly going to be something they disagree about if they're really really honest but that doesn't mean somebody's going to hell it doesn't affect your salvation like i said last week with we're saved by jesus we're saved by jesus it doesn't matter what you think if you're being honest if you're reading the bible as sensibly as you can if you're learning from the best of your tradition if you're trying to be as as full of integrity as you can in that reading and that understanding then god will honor that so yeah it's worth thinking about how that makes you feel how much that matches your experience or teaching you've heard i mean i'm sure we've all been in situations where people interpret the bible selectively but don't admit it and are we aware of the decisions we're making when we interpret the bible and that also of course then plays into things like um If you're a black person, you will interpret scripture very differently to if you're a white person, if you're a disabled person, you will interpret very differently to someone who is able bodied. If you're a woman, you'll interpret very differently to if you're a man, just because our views of the universe are different. And we all have a slightly different view of God and a slightly different view of how the whole salvation thing works for us and a a different view about the events that happened in the Bible. And we need that richness to get a full understanding. If the only theology we ever listen to is that that is written by cisgender, straight, white, old men from Europe or North America, we're going to be very limited in our understanding of God. So let's have a look at clobber text number one. Worth saying, some of these passages may have been used against you personally in an abusive way. So if talking about them again might be traumatic, do what you need to to keep yourself safe. And if it's too much, just turn it off and come back to it another time or never. Indeed, that's fine. So, Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah, the original clobber text, probably, <laughs> one that gets the sin of sodomy named after it. Um, so, cut the long story short Abraham's nephew Lot is living in the city of Sodom. Um, two angels have come down to, they've been sent by God to see if Sodom is really worthy of destruction or not. And when they arrive, Lot invites them to his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and ate. Verse 4, before they'd gone to bed, all the men from every part of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who've never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of our roof. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness so that they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, do you have anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons or daughters or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here because we're going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he sent us to destroy it. And basically they escape, except for Lot's wife who looks back and gets turned into a pillar of salt, which is the bit everybody remembers, but not not so relevant to this particular bit of the story. So the question is, what is the sin here? You can answer that if you want.
0: Can I? Yeah, but I, I've done this course a few times. <laughs> I the so I'm not going to give you the wrong one.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty obvious here, really, isn't it, that the sin is not that it was men threatening to rape a man, it's that they were men threatening to rape a person. Yes. It's that all the men in the city had gathered together to gang rape somebody. Would it have been any better if Lot had sent his daughters out instead? Of course not. It was still. No, a
0: We probably ought not to hold Lot up as some, you know, great father figure, though, because... No, (laughs) really not. Mm. Lot's reaction to this is not exactly what I would want of a father figure, just putting that out there.
1: Good good for hospitality, not good for fatherhood. But whoever would have got sent out to that gang, that would have been a horrific scenario. There is no good outcome here, and the gender of the person they're assaulting is not relevant. So what lesson we should draw from that passage is that hospitality is good that Lot, whatever his dodgy father qualities, was trying to be hospitable and protect people, and that lack of hospitality is enough to get your city splattered. Not welcoming the stranger, not welcoming the vulnerable is something God feels really strongly about, just looking at the passage itself. It's worth noting that, of course, the angels coming down there in the first place, that their card was already marked because God had sent the angels to see if they were destructible in the first place. So something had happened before that and Ezekiel 16 is really interesting it's a long way away from this in the bible but it says very specifically this was the sin of your sister Sodom this is Ezekiel 16 chapter 16 verse 49 she and her daughters were arrogant overfed and unconcerned they did not help the poor and needy they were haughty and did detestable things before me therefore I did away with them as you have seen now this is one of those bits where if you are a homophobic person you will look at that and go oh yes arrogant overfed unconcerned did not help the poor and needy and then assume the haughty and detestable things is to do with gay stuff but there's no reason in the ezekiel verse to think that at all the detestable thing it seems quite clear is not helping the poor and needy Mm. it's a bit of a jump to then suddenly put gay stuff in the middle of that out of absolutely nowhere in the ezekiel context but yeah, not helping the poor and needy, being arrogant, overfed and unconcerned seems to be enough of a deal for God to want to smite the city. So there's a really interesting question here. If the primary lessons from the Sodom story are out of the Genesis story, the importance to God of hospitality and welcome, especially, and Ezekiel, the prime importance of helping the vulnerable, what does it mean if a church uses this story to reject a young gay person from their community? They're doing exactly the things the is there to teach you not to do. They're not showing hospitality and welcome and they're rejecting a vulnerable person and putting them mm. in a more vulnerable position. So they're, they're, really... essentially,
0: they're essentially being Sodom, aren't they? And exactly.
1: So the sin of sodomy being gay sex is completely unjustified from this passage. The sin mm. of sodomy, if anything, is rejecting people from your community, especially rejecting vulnerable people from your community.
0: Mm.
1: I think it's worth watching and learning on that one. Mm. that's a bit of a pot and kettle situation isn't it but it totally is but it's the classic situation that you see everywhere all the time that if you aren't really careful you turn into what you hate yeah so true and you know some churches are so reactive against what they perceive as the ultimate evil of homosexuality that they've actually turned into the same thing that god smited this town of sodom for And that is quite a scary prospect. And I mean, I'm laughing a little as I'm saying it because it's a kind of ridiculous turnaround, but nevertheless, it happens. Mm. As bullied people turn into bullies far, far, far too often, unless you can break the cycle. It works with this as well. So anyway, having disposed of Genesis 19, we now crack on to Leviticus, everybody's favourite book. Now, Leviticus is the least followed book in the Bible. I think in a in a boring sermon once, I actually went through Leviticus and counted the verses that any Christian would be following today. And there's about a chapter of them out of about 20 chapters. So- only, only you would do that. You're the only yeah, one I know who would actually do that. If you can't prove it with data, what's the point? No, it's true. Fair enough. <laughs> so our two verses out of Leviticus that people think are applicable to today. Um, Leviticus 18.22, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. And some translations use the word an abomination.
0: Yay, that's our favourite word.
1: It is. <laughs> we should get badges. <laughs> And Leviticus 20, verse 13 if a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. That's the abomination word again. They are to be put to death, their blood will be on their own heads. So, the simplest approach to this one is the lazy one that as Gentile Christians, we're under no obligation to follow the law. We have a new covenant and we don't follow most of the rest of Leviticus, so we can just basically leave that in the historical category for. Jewish people who still choose to observe those mitzvah and blessings upon them for doing so, but it's not something that has been upon Christians since Acts. Some people say try and draw categories between moral and ritual rules in Leviticus, but that's not really justified by the text. Everything was Hebrew thinking is very holistic thinking. There isn't really moral and ritual. What you do with your body is moral, whether that's part of a religious ceremony or cooking dinner or having sex or going to work or whatever else it's all part of one thing you can't split it up like that yeah so there are plenty of verses in leviticus concerning sex that we don't still apply for example verses about not having sex with a woman during her period nobody teaches about that in church youth group that i've noticed Um, that if a man rapes a slave that they should get married for example things like that it's it's there's plenty of things concerning sex that we don't bother following however that is a lazy approach i think If we're Christians who really respect the Bible and honour it and honour the tradition it comes from, we need to really understand what that was there for in the first place, because obviously there was a reason for it. Um, And it's worth thinking it through. Now, the first thing to understand there is that people assume that the word abomination means evil. It probably does, as it's used in English now, but the original Hebrew word doesn't. It's the word, I can't pronounce Hebrew, I've not had training in that, the, the word is Torah and it's used 117 times and it's basically what's not okay for somebody's culture and it's usually for Gentile religious practices. So things that Leviticus calls an abomination are things like tattoos, mortgages, oh dear, pork yeah oh eating roadkill i think most of our listeners are probably on the, on the, on the kill list now um <laughs> and it's basically for things that don't fit a pattern for example prawns aren't proper fish pigs aren't proper farm animals they haven't got the right shaped feet children ought to be obedient jews ought to be different to gentiles but it's ought tos it's not moral categories for example there's the law against eating roadkill for jewish people but there's no pro- prohibition on selling it to gentiles to eat it's not evil It's just not a thing that Jewish people do at this time, where God is trying to separate out the Jewish people from the not Jewish people. I did not know that. uh, Exactly, exactly. So, if you knock a deer down in the forest, you can sell it to a gentile. That's fine. Just don't eat it yourself. Yeah, but I am a gentile, so that's fine. Exactly. Yeah, and I like that. (laughs) And there's very, very (laughs) few people in churches who have issues with mortgages these days. But you know, from the whole of the Deuteronomy and Levitical code, that is an abomination. So you can't decide what your abominations are and then pick the ones you like if you're going to go all abominations are bad we should go all abominations are bad and go islamic style and not do mortgages which you can do and if somebody does that totally respect it but as paul says if you're going to keep part of the law you've then got to keep all of it and that's not the the whole new testament is very clear that that's what not what jesus is there for um so the gentile religious practices why are they avoiding these well the sort To understand the context, at that time, Jews weren't monotheistic. Nobody was monotheistic. Everybody believed in lots of gods. And you can see that if you read things in the Psalms about gods sitting in the council of the gods and things like that. There's an assumption in the story language that God's one of many gods. The best, of course, the strongest, the most powerful. But God's one of a whole panoply of gods of greater or lesser power and goodness. And the main issue, of course, you're living in a desert country is basically fertility. If your crops don't grow, you die. If your animals don't produce offspring, you die. If your families don't produce children, your line dies out. So, the whole issue in a hunter gatherer, beginning agricultural, deserty sort of society is fertility. So, the God in the area of fertility is Asherah, the Queen of Heaven. Everybody in the area of whatever their tribe basically worships Asherah because fertility is the thing which is why you see frequent references in the Hebrew Bibles to priests as shrine prostitutes because fertility worship tends to involve a lot of, guess what, sex. Because Sex, yeah. Really, at least <laughs> how happy she can talk about sex loudly. <laughs> but you have this constant uh, references to Asherah and to shrine prostitutes because that was the massive, massive issue for every tribe living in that area. You also got to think about what marriage is like in the ancient world everybody talks about biblical marriage we'll come back to this another week but biblical marriage is not what we think of as marriage now It's incredibly patriarchal women are seen as property it's a financial deal fathers sold their daughters to a husband you've got the whole dowry thing going on you've got ownership basically secured by penetration which is why you get these crazy rules about rapists marrying their victims because basically they bought them horrific as that seems to us today marriage is a it's not about love and devotion it's about inheritance it's about property rights and although certainly ancient societies considered unfaithfulness as a bad thing that's because it was theft rather than because it was immorality you're basically stealing somebody else's property you're stealing because their wife belongs to them and then if you are also having a child as a result of that theft supposedly then you're potentially stealing their property as well with your inheritance so it's not the way we view marriage today at all. So in a context where everyone is married, you, you know, most marriages are gonna be arranged. You're not gonna have true love matches going on. So you'd be married off by your parents when you get to an appropriate age. Women are not counted as full humans. Being penetrated means to be owned like a woman. You've got these fertility cults everywhere that are the biggest threat to Jewish tribal identity and God trying to get the Jewish people to say, right, okay, trust in me, I will give you everything you need. But they can't see that because they're surrounded by all these other people going, no, but you've got to do this for Asherah and you've got to worship there and you've got to do that. Is there any possible reason why the law might say don't have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman? That's an abomination. Yes, there is. Is that the right (laughs) answer? (laughs) So you've got several threads there you've got the thread of idolatry because um sex outside of your marriage that you were arranged into when you were 14 or something then you are being you are being unfaithful to your partner that's a sensible reason you've got the whole thing about um sex outside of marriage in that culture often being in the context of asherah worship so that's idolatry that's a sensible reason you've got the whole um thing of women not having rights to choose so if you're treating somebody like a woman it could be seen as you're making that person less and you're not treating them respectfully and that you're owning them and you're not giving them equality and you're not giving them mutuality that would be a good reason so there's a lot of ways you can think about that that would be a sensible reason in the context of the time for thinking that those sorts of relationships might not be the best sort of thing which of course we're in a very different situation now, but you can ask the same questions and they're not ridiculous questions at all. To what extent might a modern relationship be similar enough to follow those same rules? Is it idolatrous? Sometimes some people worship their partner so much that it's really unhealthy or worship sex so much that they get themselves into really bad situations that are unsafe and unhealthy because they're kind of obsessed. Is it demeaning or exploitative? Well, I know relationships like that, I'm sure you do. Mm. Is it unfaithful to an existing commitment? And that's something that's worth thinking about. And notice I didn't say same-sex relationship there. Of course, they could apply to any sort of relationship, whatever the gender of the participants. But there are some genuine questions there that are worth bearing in mind to ensure that the relationships you have are healthy and not exploitative and are mutual and are respectful and are honoring to God. And they're questions that are really worth bearing in mind. But the answers are nothing to do with the gender of the people in it. Does that make sense?
0: It really does. And I think it really kind of emphasizes how, you know, those phrases we said in the beginning, you know, the Bible clearly says, Well, the the Bible doesn't clearly say the Bible says a lot of different things. And when you start looking at how scriptures have been read over time, when you start looking at how scriptures are interpreted today in different ways, because it's not like all Christians interpret the Bible the same way today, as you said, then you're on really, really dangerous ground. If you start using the phrase, well, the Bible clearly says this another you have to ask yourself like does it but does it really say that or is that what your your translation and your bible class says is that what translation
1: there's another really interesting point we talk a lot about the original hebrew Mm. we don't have the original hebrew no the oldest hebrew we have comes from about 1100 ad not bc
0: yeah
1: and it's kept in Leni- or St. Petersburg now. It's called Leningrad manuscript because it was called Leningrad when they gave it the name and it's changed its name back since. But that's the oldest Hebrew manuscript anybody has, Jewish or Christian. We have an older version of the Hebrew scriptures, but it's a Greek translation that was made around sort of, well, during the Greek occupation of um, Palestine. And so the actual oldest version we have of Leviticus doesn't use the Hebrew words, it uses the Greek words. And the Greek words are the same ones that we'll look at in the New Testament passages next week, which are basically child molesters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What about the Dead
0: Sea Scrolls? Do you know much about them? I've been to Qumran and I still don't know much about it. What's
1: wrong with me? Yes, they've added a lot of clarity to the kind of aware. What they've, well, they they haven't added to clarity at all. They have really muddied the water because up to when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, people had this idea of an original Hebrew text and an original Greek text. And basically, what the Dead Sea Scrolls gave us were a load of really, really much earlier texts, but they were all different to each other. So it kind of confirmed mm-hmm. the view that actually there was never an original text there were lots of different texts written down by people at different times and they were brought together and collated at some point and that's formed. which makes wishes that we have now
0: and then then that makes the missioner make sense doesn't it as to why you've got lots of different people having thoughts and opinions and arguing with each other in the pages of a text because they're all reading slightly
1: different things exactly if this interests you i recommend pete n's podcast the bible for normal people which has several episodes throughout its history that go into the history of the bible and where the texts come from in much more detail than i can with any sense of sense or logic. But it's it is a fascinating story and it does completely blow apart the idea that we have that at some point. Like the sort of Muslim idea that at some point God dictated from heaven the words that Muhammad wrote down. We have a similar mm. idea about the Bible, mm. even though the Bible doesn't say that about itself. Um, but it's historically not what happened. But I people get really freaked out by this. If you're if you're an evangelical person and you're you're at a very early stage of exploring this stuff, I probably just frightened you to death. <laughs> I think the place I've come to with it is to start to see it as a feature, not a glitch. Because think about the Bible. It starts off with a creation story in Genesis one. And then in Genesis two, there's a different one. Yeah. You could kind of work your way around trying to jigsaw them together, but they're different and then you follow the stories of Israel and you get to you know kings and chronicles and they're telling different stories of that part of history they tell the same period of history but one's from the point of view of the northern kingdom one's from the point of view of the southern kingdom and they disagree with each other quite a lot because they're coming from different political perspectives of course you get to jesus you've got four gospels right. and that's only the ones that were included in the bible right. so you start to get the impression it's not like god wanted us to ever think there was only one account of the story God's yeah, yeah, deliberately yeah. built in multiple accounts at different stages to and that's before you get to people who you know will take apart Genesis and say this was written by this person and this was written by that person and they all come together um but I think it's quite important because the Bible never describes itself in the way that some Christians do I mean yeah, that's true there's lots said in the Bible about the word of God but what's the word of God John 1 it's Jesus mm. Jesus is the word of God, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, Jesus is the, the, the inerrant one and if we start putting that onto a book we'd be in a lot of trouble because we will read it differently so I think God's almost deliberately built in the differences so that we actually don't get hoodwinked by thinking the Bible itself is perfect, it's perfect for what God wanted it to do which is point to Jesus, Jesus is the perfect one. Yeah
0: absolutely I'm gonna I'm gonna throw in the plug for the book. You know I was gonna do it at some point because for, sure. for me that's been a book that's been really really helpful in kind of unpicking the cultural context of scripture. Rachel knows exactly which book I'm talking about, um, and it, it's called The Badly Behaved Bible by Nick Page. That's twi- we've done two episodes and I've quoted Nick in in two of them. This is a Nick Page fan podcast, <laughs> uh, but I really like Nick's writing and I think that book is one of his best actually and it really does that it 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 doesn't pull the scripture apart and leave you kind of going oh well then what on earth is the bible but it starts to help you understand the context in which the scriptures were written the different political things and social things that were going on across history and I think one of the things that I really found helpful from it was and I kind of use this myself now but the bible is really the story of man humankind mainly men because it's mainly men um trying to understand their relationship to god and what that means for them it's completely the other way around actually i think it's the you know they say it's like the infallible word of god well i think it is the fallible word word of man trying to make sense of this thing called god that they can't quite Fathom.
1: Yeah.
0: The mystery of it's a mystery, exactly. The mystery is the Trinity. Well, we come on to the New Testament next week, but you know, (laughs) it it is a mystery, and I'm the older I get, the more happier I am with being okay with the mystery
1: of it all. I don't really need the answers. Yes, there's sometimes more fun in not having them. Mm. Anyway. So just to round off Leviticus, one thing that Leviticus never, ever, ever says is people are never abominations. It talks about actions, including, of course, your tattoos and your mortgages before we over- overwhelm that. Um, but, you know, people, people use this hateful, hateful language and describe people as abominations. But to use that word on a person, that's a detestable thing. And for a church called to show God's love to all, to use that word to reject LGBT people, that is itself an abomination. That's not, If a church is meant to be kind and welcoming, then an abomination is not being what you're meant for, then a church using that word to reject people is an abomination. So yet again, we've turned into what we hate. Let's yeah. not do that.
0: No, let's not do that. I hope this has been helpful for you. Um, the next one will be, I'm, I'm presuming it's the new testament it's been a while will, looked at this, but we've done the old testament so i'm gonna assume that we're coming on to the new testament it's gonna, gonna be
1: romans one everybody your favorite
0: romans, exactly we're gonna have a look at some of the, the verses in there in a similar way um so join us next time and we hope that you are enjoying this and getting a lot out of it i've got nine tattoos
1: i'm really pleased for you do you, do you, uh, do you want prayer <laughs> i don't have a mortgage so did i it, don't have a mortgage either does that balance it out maybe, maybe that balances it out <laughs> did have a bacon sandwich though oh you gotta love a bacon sandwich and a prawn prawn jacket potato Oh, that's hungry. good that's good kind of abomination you know i'm fine with that